welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com. And joining me today, he is the man who played Mr. Brinkman in the Lifetime original series Any Day Now, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? David, thank you so much. Yes, Mr. Brinkman. You know, last night I, I went to see Mr. Brinkman. Mr. The, Br- other, the, the other, other Mr. Mr. Brinkman, Brinkman right. Mr. Robert Brinkman. Robert Brinkman, who, of course, directed Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party, the uh, movie on which this podcast series was inspired. Absolutely correct. And every year, in fact, I, it's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, we are close to the one-year anniversary of Robert getting married to Olive, who he met on a movie in Korea. And every year at this time, Robert does a big dessert party. He has special desserts from all over the world. He invites all of his friends. Uh, but the big, the big specialty thing of this dessert party is none of the desserts are made with any of the normal ingredients we associate with desserts like sugar and butter. All the things that kind of make desserts taste like desserts. So they're all made with, you know, nut tree extract and uh, the sap from a tree from South America. And a lot of desserts are made with stevia which I thought I would like because my name is Stephen, and so I just kind of with a familial thing, I thought I'd like it. But uh, last night, I think I had, I, I relished the uh, pumpkin cheesecake. I had a young man came up to me who said, you're the man with the broken neck. I have a broken back. Tell me what I need to expect. And then I saw he was in a full body cast with a cane. And then I had another young man came up to me and say, I was at the end of my rope. Robert Brinkman downloaded a bunch of podcasts for you, and one of them happened to be conference hour, and it it was the right thing at the right time. So it was a great party, and uh, I'm still trying to see if I'm going to have kind of diabetic fits after what I had last night with the nut tree extract. Well, Mr. Brinkman, also a uh, fateful figure in the creation of the Tobolowsky Files. Uh, Some people might be curious how this whole podcast thing started in the first place. And the way it actually worked out was uh, I had heard about Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, the movie. So I uh, ordered it online at stbpmovie.com and got it shipped to my house. But the site is, shall we say, uh, a little bit dated. Uh, (laughs) It has not been updated in, you know... 15 years or, or something like that. And so I was very concerned that my DVD would never actually get to me, that this company that was shipping out these Tobolowsky DVDs was not actually in existence. So I called up uh, the company, Monster Releasing, and uh, the person picks up the phone. I expect him to say, hello, Monster Releasing, you know, like some customer service representative, but it's actually just a dude. And he's like, hello. And I say, oh, uh, hi, is this Monster Releasing? He's like, oh, yes, that's me. And I was like, okay, uh, so I am looking to get the uh, Stephen Tobolowsky birthday party. Is it going to be shipped to me? I ordered it, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm still shipping them out. I'm doing it myself. And so I say, okay, excellent. And before I hang up the phone, I am uh, very sort of anal retentive about these types of things. So whenever I talk with a customer service representative, I always ask them, uh, what's your name? Just in case I, I need to say, oh, I spoke with so-and-so later on in case uh, the DVD mysteriously gets lost. And he says, oh, this is Robert. And I say, is this Robert Brinkman, the director of Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party? And he says, 
Yes, it is. And we go, oh, talking about, oh, I work at SlashFilm.com, which is a great movie blog. And he says, I'm sure Stephen would love to come onto your podcast to talk about the movie. And from there... The beautiful friendship was formed that led to Stephen <laughs> Tobolowsky's, or I'm sorry, I should say the Tobolowsky files being created. Isn't that right, Stephen? That is something, that is very true, David. We, besides the beautiful friendship, yes, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, we have a very lean and mean a warehouse uh, arrangement where our director also handles all the phone calls, does all the mailings. Uh, <laughs> maybe someday we'll make our money back. I doubt it. It's a very glamorous but, job. It's a glamorous job, and it never would have happened if, if if it hadn't been for you, David. This, you know, you've really helped the movie out so much. It's and uh, oh, we do have a big announcement we'll make at the end of the show too. Exactly. Um, but from my point of view, let me talk a little bit about because this kind of goes into the story today uh, about when I first met you. Uh, if it won't make you blush, uh, but uh, for the listeners out there, it was uh, several years ago. I was asked by one of the powers that be, a.k.a. David Chin of SlashFilm.com, to be one of the reviewers, if I am correct, David, of The Mummy 3. That is correct. The Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. I was excited. I hadn't seen a mummy movie in a long time, and I was interested to see how Hollywood handled the always sensitive subject of life after death. I entered the theater with low expectations, all of which were met. Now, I'm not dissing the film. Their goal was to set the bar low. They succeeded. The movie was an amusing romp that didn't make a whole lot of sense. But in the end, David, it was just like a long cross-country flight and made everybody feel happy when it was finally over. And smiling faces when you leave the theater, you can't ask for more than that. So I went home and I told my 13-year-old son, William, that I just saw a movie he might really like. And he asked me which one, and I told him The Mummy 3, and he said, oh, I've seen it already. I said, how could you have seen it already? It just came out today. And he said, I saw the poster. That's all I need to know. It's a mummy movie, so there's going to be lots of special effects in the desert. It's got Brendan Fraser, so there'll be jokes. It's got Jet Li, so the bad mummy will know kung fu. It'll end with some kind of big fight in a temple where Brendan Fraser gets his butt kung fu by Jet Li until some weird thing happens with the moon or the cute girl pulls a rope by accident that releases something that makes Jet Li dissolve. Brendan Fraser will leave with the girl, and if the movie makes enough money, he'll be back in Egypt in a couple years for Mummy 4, but with a different girl. End of story. Wow. I was stunned by the obviously premature development of my son's frontal lobes. He was only 13, and he was already thinking like an executive at Universal. Of course, the whole thing shouldn't have surprised me. One of the allures of popular entertainment is easy accessibility to the end of a story. We've all been trained to see where a story will end almost from the moment it starts. But like any good magic trick... The end is not the only illusion. We've also probably been misdirected as to where the real beginning was. My son William inadvertently understood in a very real way that where the true beginning of Mummy 4 will be will not be in Egypt, as some viewers might think, but will be buried deep in the box office receipts of the final tally of Mummy 3. Stories are often criticized for their endings. 
too predictable, too sad, too happy, basically unsatisfying. But for whatever reason, very few questions are ever asked about how a story begins. We seem to take that part of it for granted. Last year, pretty much, pretty much last year, I spent a lot of time relating the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis with its various twists and turns. But in my retelling of that story, I began where most people do with the young Joseph being thrown into a pit by his brothers. Well, that was somewhat arbitrary on my part. The story doesn't necessarily begin there, and the power of any story changes when you change the starting point. There is an earlier moment in the Joseph story that could serve as a different beginning. It's tiny. It's an insignificant moment. I've read it and missed its importance for years. So it's with the thanks of Rabbi Jonathan Bernhardt and Rabbi Deborah Silver that I share this with you. Okay, before the pit and the fight and the torn coat of many colors, Jacob, Joseph's father, asks the 17-year-old to see if he could find where his brothers are pasturing the sheep. Young Joseph sets out to find them, and he walks down the road for miles with no luck. He travels to the next city, nothing. Various commentators have different opinions as to what happens next, as to whether Joseph was lost or if he was operating on instinct. Whatever. He leaves the trail and ends up in the middle of a field, in the middle of nowhere. And in the middle of all of this nothing, a stranger walks up to him. The stranger has no name. There's no description of him. He comes up to the boy and asks a single question. What are you looking for? Joseph answers, I seek my brothers. Right there in those two lines is the history of man on earth. The man tells Joseph where to look for them. They part ways. Joseph changes his course and starts on a new journey a journey that would soon lead to his near murder, his slavery, his career as a reader of dreams, the savior of Egypt in a worldwide famine, and eventually the savior of his brothers who had tried to kill him. If you begin the Joseph story here with a stranger in the field, it's no longer just a story of sibling rivalry, but becomes an example of chaos theory. A stranger in one random moment changed the course of Joseph's life and consequently all of history. Of course, meeting the stranger is just another arbitrary beginning. We could go further back on the XY axis to another starting point, one before Joseph was born, back to when his father, Jacob, was a young man. One night, he too was alone in the wilderness. He too met a stranger. Jacob wrestled with the stranger all night, and when this chance meeting was over, his life was also changed forever. Now, I'm not interested in whether this story is history or metaphor. In this case, it doesn't matter. I'm only showing how when you change the beginning of a story, it changes the entire narrative. It changes the moral. It changes the invisible fabric we call the plot, which is not only an explanation of what happened, but why. Anybody who's interested in beginnings will tell you, of course, the danger of moving the XY axis to a new zero is that sometimes you actually begin to tell a different story. Huge example. I was reading a very interesting article about the Big Bang. 
not the television show, but the theory of the beginning of all things. The Big Bang was based on the ideas of Albert Einstein and the work of a Belgian mathematician, cosmologist, and most interestingly, a Catholic priest named George Lemaitre, who said the universe began at a unique moment on a day without a yesterday. Like-minded physicists noted the galaxy seemed to be rushing away from a central point, underscoring the universal law that things are always in a hurry to go nowhere in particular. It was a radical idea. Most people aren't sure what happened last week, let alone 14 billion years ago. But what was also radical, because the Big Bang conferred a beginning on something that never had one before, the universe. The universe always pretty much just was. But once the Big Bang said there was a moment where it started, it accidentally set in motion another cosmic law that says once something has a beginning, it also has a history. History is like cleaning a cantaloupe. It always leaves a mess. Most of us learn about the mess history can make when we start dating in high school. Once there's a history, there are always threads that unravel to a new beginning of the story. For the universe, if there was a Big Bang, what happened before it? The article I read was very clear about this point, saying that, quote, any notion about what happened before the Big Bang is a matter of pure speculation, end quote. This was, of course, an implied compliment to themselves that the rest of their understanding of the beginning of time and space was not pure speculation. Now, I have no argument with the physicists. If they say they know what happened, I'm sure they're right. At least I hope so for their sakes. But if I were to pull a Joseph Jacob slide of the XY axis back in time, we could find an equally eerie parallel for the Big Bang physicists that's just as creepy as father and son both meeting a stranger in the wilderness a generation apart. For the physicists, this stranger is the 13th century Jewish scholar Nachmanides. 800 years ago, before Einstein and Lemaitre, he speculated on the first moments of the universe as well, and I quote, At the briefest instant following creation... All matter in the universe was concentrated in a very small place, no larger than a grain of mustard. The matter at this time was very thin, so intangible, it did not have real substance. From the initial concentration, this substance expanded, expanding the universe as it did so. As the expansion progressed, a change in the substance occurred. This initially thin, non-corporeal substance took on the tangible aspects of matter as we know it. From this pseudo-substance, everything that has existed, or will ever exist, was, is, and will be formed. Amazing. Certainly this medieval Spanish mystic wasn't a scientist, but if you move the story of Einstein back 800 years to a new zero, you have another narrative. It's no longer the story of a singular genius who tried to express the inexpressible. Now you have the tale of a singular idea that went looking for a new storyteller. Brief digression. I see the debate over the beginnings of things from a very different perspective. I look at it in movie terms. When you talk about the universe, the real argument seems to be over what is act one. When the universe was eternal, it had no beginning or end. It had no act at all. It was the stage. 
And on that stage, you could tell whatever story you wanted, the birth and death of stars, the evolution, extinction of dinosaurs, the progression of life and the rise of man. Each story had its space to tell its tale in three acts. But if the universe has a start, that becomes act one, making the death of the universe act three, making everything else a small, extraneous scene in act two. All of us and everything we know is reduced to being a character actor, a supporting role riding on the back of some greater cosmic motion. Experience has taught me that when your part is no longer connected with Act 1 and Act 3 and the movie's running long, your stuff can be cut. It's hard being a character actor. Character actors are often confused about what they're supposed to be doing. And I not only hate to wish that fate on all of mankind, but I don't think I could take the competition. Back to the story. Big bang or no, the moment that interests me the most is the same in either case. If the universe is eternal, what happened to make all life come about? And if modern physicists and Nachmanides are correct, and there was a big bang, then what was the moment before there was time and space? What was the moment that even our great scientists say is in the realm of pure speculation? Both questions are the same one. Not what was the moment we call zero, but what was the moment before zero? That's all the first chapter of Genesis really is, an essay on the moment before zero. Now, I've never been one to see the need to declare Adam and Eve and that story science. Dr. Weinberg, in his lecture on dark matter in Dallas, took some shots at the Bible and religion for being a misguided theory of the events at the beginning of time. And I understand his irritation in that he has his own book on the subject called The First Three Minutes, which I've ordered, can't wait to read. But I think it's odd to accuse Genesis and the Bible of being bad science since it was written before there was science. The closest thing the ancients who wrote the Bible had to scientists were astrologers and reader of dreams. Rather than to argue as to whether dinosaurs fit into Genesis, I am amazed at the how close Genesis is to the scientific version of the beginning of life and time. Without the benefit of Stephen Hawking for advice, it orders events in an almost identical way. First, a mysterious cosmic explosion, followed by the creation of matter, followed by liquid water, followed by lower life forms, followed by vertebrates, followed by man without cognition, followed by man with cognition. And despite the modern prejudice we have toward the absolute truth of science, Dr. Weinberg and the rest of our dream readers with their mapping of background radiation patterns and examination of deuterium ratios haven't really answered anything at all. They may have slid the XY axis back to where they see a new zero, but they still can't see beyond their own findings. There will always be a moment before zero. I would like to go on record and say that I think the moment before zero is real. It exists in the realm of magic and the imagination. It's the world that exists in the dark, and you don't have to travel to a black hole to find it. It's everywhere we look. An actor feels it every time he opens a script for the first time. It's there whenever a writer or a musician faces the dreadful empty page. It also exists in matters of the heart. Um, last time I spoke to Beth... 
we were reminiscing about our initial meetings, and she was very sure we never had a first date, but (laughs) I remember one in which my concept of the moment before zero played a major part. It was back in 1970. Beth decided to take some summer classes at SMU, and I secretly was thrilled because the prospect of not seeing her for three months was unimaginable. I asked her out to lunch and told her I would pick her up at the dorm at 1 p.m. I went out that morning and bought some carnations. I know, (laughs) I know that is considered day class A now, but back then I thought the carnation was the most wonderful of flowers. I was so eager, I arrived at her dorm over an hour early. I walked up the front steps, and then I saw something through the front window that made me stop in my tracks. There, in the lobby, was Beth, sitting, all dressed up, waiting. I jumped down the steps and hid in the bushes out front to collect my thoughts. I took an ill-advised journey to the moment before zero. Why was Beth all dressed up? She never dressed up around me. Why was she downstairs over an hour before our date? The answer came down with crushing force. She had forgotten our lunch. Worse, she was about to go out with someone else. I was not only about to be stood up, but I was about to be dumped at the same time. The blood rushed to my head. I was humiliated and furious. I snapped. I charged up the stairs into the lobby. I made such a racket, everybody looked up to see what was happening. Beth was the most surprised at all. She said, Stephen, what are you doing here? I said, in case you forgot, we had a date for lunch. I turned and started to leave, but then determined to leave no bad choice unchosen. I came back and said, oh, here, I got these for you. And then I threw the carnations at her. (laughs) Oh, dear. She sat there stunned. I marched out of the dorm in a cloud of despair. She ran out after me and explained to me that she was waiting for me. She was just eager, too. I apologized for throwing the flowers at her. She said it was all right. I was probably just having a problem with sanity. We went out. We had a lovely day. But it almost didn't happen because of my dangerous and careless navigation into the moment before zero. If zero is a place where the physical world begins, the moment before zero is the domain of angels and demons. It's the starting point of the soul. Interestingly enough, my former acting teacher, guru, and dungeon master, Ed K. Martin, gave a piece of advice that also revolved around the theme of finding the place we call zero when you're acting. He said it was essential for an actor to remember to always go to zero when you rehearse or perform. We asked him eagerly for a translation into English. Ed said you had to understand the first moment of the scene, 
where you start, that place is called zero. When you rehearse a scene over and over and over again, it's easy to get stuck in the emotional place at the end of the scene instead of rewinding to where you were at the beginning. Fine. I understood what Ed was saying in a theoretical way back then. But now, 30 years and 200 television shows later, I see the wisdom of his advice, and I think it's important for every young actor to hear this. In television, one of the greatest challenges you have is you have to work quickly and you have to shoot multiple takes. And the really great television actors have the ability to snap back to the first beat of a scene instantly, ready for the director's call up one more time from the top. Conversely, I have seen several actors play a scene beautifully. Then they get lost on their way back to zero. They'll start take two in tears before they hear the bad news that their son was kidnapped, or they'll be angry at their boss at the top of a scene before they hear they've been fired. It could be a mess. Finding and returning to zero is a skill that cannot be underestimated. It's central to almost every project I've worked on. Now, a lot of actors use something physical, like a prop, or a simple activity to ground themselves and snap back to the beginning of a scene. But even doing that is unreliable. So right now, I would like to add my two cents to Ed Kay's rule by stating for me, the only way to be consistent about getting back to zero is in finding the moment before zero. The moment before zero is the key that unlocks every scene. It's the imaginary world that informs you of where your character was before your scene started and where he's going once the scene ends. It instructs you as to what your character's thinking when you're silent. And in my experience, improvisation? Improvisation doesn't come from having a pocket of clever one-liners, but it comes from saying something we all recognize as true. And that truth comes from knowing the moment before zero. I should mention, it's not always easy to think about the moment before zero. Sometimes it could give you a headache. Start small. I ask myself, does my character like a hamburger or a seven-course French dinner? Does he like to work out or take walks on the beach? Dogs or cats? Sex or sleep? Slowly, the invisible world will start to take shape. Of course, sometimes you can do all the work in the world. You can know your zero. You can have created your moment before zero, and you could still fry omelets. Failure doesn't necessarily mean you're terrible. It could happen any time someone else moves the XY axis to a new beginning and the story suddenly changes. In Mad About You, I was the principal of a high school where Uncle Phil, character played by Mel Brooks, decided to return and get his diploma. And there was a party scene in the school gym at graduation where Mel was manning a punch bowl. In the script, I enter and I ask him, where's the shrimp? I know. It's hilarious. I live to say great lines like that. But on the night of the show, Mel thought it would be funnier if he entered the scene and I manned the punch bowl. That would give him a bigger entrance, more opportunity to improvise, which it did. But they never changed my line. So now I'm manning the punch bowl. Mel enters. He improvises something hilarious. And then out of nowhere, I say, where's the shrimp? Horrible. Before the cameras rolled, 
I ran over to the writers and mentioned that it didn't make any sense for me to ask Mel about the shrimp now, since he wasn't at the party and he would not know where the shrimp was. And they said, sorry, only Mr. Brooks gets to change the lines. You stick to the script. So in a deadly combination of whimsy and bureaucracy, I ended up with no zero and no moment before zero, just at the moment when the director called action. As an actor, when you're forced to do something utterly meaningless, your only option is to quickly invent a new moment before zero. In this case, I pretended I was somewhere else, asleep, and soon I would wake up and the whole world would be beautiful again. I had a unique course on the dangers of not finding zero in the film Bird on a Wire, starring Mel Gibson and Goldie Hawn. In the movie, Mel Gibson and I had a fistfight that lasted no more than 90 seconds of screen time. However, the fight took 11 hours to shoot. 11 hours of wrestling, punching, kicking, eye-poking, grunting, shouting. A fight is the ultimate exercise for the actor in getting back to zero. Because there's always a moment when you have to decide a fight is necessary in the scene. There's always the first punch. If you have no way to get back to zero, your fight could look phony. Or worse, it can be dangerous. In truth, my character was never supposed to have a fist fight with Mel Gibson. Bill Duke's character was. Now, Bill Duke was really one of the bad men in the movie. He played a killer. I was just a computer geek, a sort of white-collar criminal. But whoever fought Mel Gibson had to be kicked into a tank of piranhas and be eaten alive. Bill couldn't swim, and he didn't want to go into the tank with live fish. So Rob Cohen, the producer, and in an eerie foreshadowing of the movement of the XY axis, the future director of Mummy 3, asked me if I wanted to switch deaths with Bill. Well, this was great news for me. It was like kind of a promotion. Geeks never get to fight with Mel Gibson and have a dramatic death. We usually just get shot or get electrocuted by a faulty three-pronged plug. We were going to make cinematic history. So we're about to rehearse the fight, and Mel Mel looked me over and laughed and said in a very good-natured way, you don't do many fights in movies, do you? I said, no, Mel. He smiled and shook his head and said, no offense. I could just tell. Well, listen, Stephen, I do a lot of these all the time, and let me give you a piece of advice. So I'm listening attentively, and Mel says, whatever you do, don't make punching or kicking noises with your mouth like pow, bam, kapow. For whatever reasons, guys revert back to when they were 10 years old when they do these scenes, and it really looks stupid. Just swing, let the sound effects guys put in the hits. Mel patted me on the back. We laughed, and we began. In a fight, the difficulty of getting back to zero is that you get more and more tired as you do more and more takes, and at the same time, your adrenaline keeps rising. Believe it or not, when you fake a fight, your body doesn't always know it. You will automatically start to react as if you're in real danger. Well, we were fine for about two hours. Then I punched Mel in the gut and accidentally yelled, BAM! Mel looked at me and raised his eyebrows. We continued. We were getting weary after about four hours. 
We had one of those moments where we were struggling over a gun and Mel grabbed my wrist and had to do one of those things that we've all seen a million times in the movie where he had to pound my hand on a rock so I would drop the weapon. Mel grabbed my wrist and with a great mock force pretended to de-gun me on a rock and accidentally yelled out, SLAM! Mel blushed and looked at me like he just farted at a church picnic. He apologized. We kept going. After eight hours, we took a breather, but neither of us was able to get back to zero at all. We were literally punchy. Rule of thumb. You never get hurt the first time you go through a fight in a movie. You get hurt on the 50th time. On the next take, Mel really hit my hand on the rock. I saw stars, my adrenaline soared. I jumped up, I grabbed him. I lifted him off the ground and threw him six feet in the air into a rock wall. Mel came running back at me like a safety for the Green Bay Packers, knocked me backwards four feet into the tank of piranhas where I was eaten. But that's a different story. The moral of this tale, of not being able to go back to zero that day, was a real one. It was about two months before I got full feeling back into my hand. Mel had his ribs taped. And for three weeks, extra-strength Tylenol became one of our four basic food groups. I always smile when I think of that day fighting with Mel. But on the same film, I had what I still think was one of the most horrific moments I've ever had as an actor had nothing to do with fistfights or piranhas. As I look at it now, through the lens of time, I see it was clearly a moment when my salvation or demise would come down to a belief in something completely non-existent, completely speculative, the moment before zero. Like a bird on a wire like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried my way to be free It was my first day on the movie Bird on a Wire, my first scene. I was filming my half of a phone call with Mel Gibson. A little background. In the movie, I play a government operative, Joe Wayburn, uh, who we all think is a really good guy and a lifeline for Mel's character, Rick Jarman. I tell Mel that I will personally come and bring him to safety. He just needs to tell me where he is, and he does so reluctantly. I tell him I'm on my way. I hang up the phone and immediately dial up our main bad guy, David Carradine, and give him the address. It's a major plot point in the film. It creates suspense that no one can be trusted and that Rick, a.k.a. Mel, was truly alone. Art director John Badham asked me in a very jovial way if I could sort of tip my hand to the audience during the phone call that I was dishonest, maybe roll my eyes or make a sarcastic glance to indicate that I was an evil sort of fella. As John said... Maybe you could twirl your mustache a bit. I wasn't happy with the idea because I felt like I was winking at the camera. In my experience, when people lie, they always try to appear to be absolutely sincere for fear of being caught. I also thought dramatically it would be a bigger surprise for the audience if they really bought the fact that I was on Mel's side until I made that second phone call. 
I was on camera in my little FBI office. Mel was down the hall, around the corner in another room on a microphone, and I was wearing one of those little earpieces so I could hear his end of the conversation as if we were really talking on the phone. We kept shooting take after take. I kept going to zero and playing that I was Mel's best friend. John was getting more and more frustrated with my not taking the direction of feigning sincerity and displaying somehow my underpinning of evil. At first, he joked with me and said, oh, come on. Give me just one take that way, just for fun. But I knew filmmaking is not a democracy. One take of something wrong is as good as 50 if that's the only take they wanted. Regardless of what I thought was right, it would be the only take they would use. John tried everything. He was critical. He was angry. He appealed to the ham in me, and he said, Oh, come on, you're allowed to chew the scenery a little bit? Tension was building. The set grew quiet, which is never a good sign, and worst of all, the crew was not making eye contact with me. I was getting more and more queasy that this was not a good start for me on this movie. Then, surprisingly, John came into my little room with a huge smile. He said he looked back over the last take. He was wrong. It really was pretty good. He just wanted to try one more take. He was going to go down and give Mel some notes on his performance and for me just to hang in there. Ah, I felt relieved. I waited for John to talk to Mel. There was one oversight. The sound man left Mel's microphone on. I heard John's footsteps move down the hall around the corner in my earpiece. Then as large as life, he started talking to Mel, and the conversation went something like this. Hey, Mel. Mel answered. How's it going? John replied, Awful. This guy is terrible. He can't act. He's probably the worst actor I've ever seen. He's a block of wood, nothing. I'm probably going to have to fire him after this take. Mel sympathized. Sorry, man. John continued in better humor. It's all right. We'll get somebody else and reshoot it next week. We haven't wasted a lot of time with him. Anyway, Mel, on this take, improvise, scream, do something to get him to react, anything. I'll give it one more try before we dump him. Pause. I almost fell over dead in my little office chair. I couldn't even breathe. The idea of getting to zero, impossible. Unless, of course, zero meant crying and running off the set. The first thing I said to myself after I realized I was still alive and would have to do the scene again was, I should just give in, I should just do what John wanted, twirl my mustache, act like a villain. But then I realized I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't have a mustache in the movie. I didn't know what kind of look I could give that would convey malevolence unless I tried to imitate Moe in The Three Stooges. I heard John walking back from Mel's room. And then he stuck his head into my office, gave me a huge smile, thumbs up, and said, Ready? One more take. Let's have some fun. I was so proud of myself, I managed not to vomit. A second thought came into my head to contradict my first thought's advice to give in. You know, second thoughts are usually pretty good. Unfortunately, I often treat mine like a telemarketer calling at supper time. But now I was a captive audience, and it said, Stephen, Stephen, just because you fold like a deck chair and give them what they want doesn't mean they won't fire you. You'll get fired, and you would have been terrible in the scene. It's lose-lose, and you'll always blame yourself. 
On the set, they yelled, action. The phone rang. I answered it. Mel was improvising with a capital I for insane. He was swearing. He was screaming. He never knew it, but he made my decision for me. I listened to my second thoughts. I went back to zero. I stuck with my choice to act as if I was Mel's savior. After all, now he was so crazy and so upset, he needed a friend. As the scene went on, and the more Mel flew off the handle, the steadier and calmer I had to be. In the end, John didn't fire me. Thank goodness. And I don't think the deciding factor was that John ended up thinking that I was right about the way I played the scene. Not at all. But I think they needed a patsy to switch deaths with Bill Duke and be thrown into the fish tank. And that could be a hard sell for a new actor, not playing the scene with Mel, but being eaten by piranhas. I never intended to be difficult. And I'm sure John never wanted the scene to go poorly. We were just victims of a different concept of the moment before Zero. The why of a scene. My first why was... Why would I be a traitor to my job in the FBI and therefore a traitor to my country by secretly working for David Carradine, who was a particularly nasty man in this movie? Whether the reason was money or blackmail, that would have to be kept a secret. And if there's any profession where new cars, new clothes, trips to Vegas would raise a red flag, it would probably be working for the FBI. Therefore, I saw my actions, including my devious inner life, as having to be kept a secret. So it's not much of a leap that I would keep them a secret in my phone call with Mel. John had a different concept of my character's moment before Zero. I suspect he thought I was the face of conspiracy, a personal extension of a nameless, dangerous force like government or big corporations, UFOs, who feel empowered to use and discard people by whim. And then when someone feels that empowered, they don't need secrets. They can twirl their mustache any time they want. It is interesting that in real life, in dealing with me, John chose to act like my character in the movie and befriend me and keep my trust. Yeah, in show business you learn to hate irony. The grandest irony of all was during this entire movie I didn't grasp the significance that I was riding on the back of a larger cosmic motion. I was standing on the threshold of a new moment before zero, a moment that would change my entire life. And it didn't come in the form of a comet or a supernova. It came with a phone call in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. I was about to meet the stranger. Some beggar
on the wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way to be free That was The Moment Before Zero, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Uh, David? Yes, sir? Uh, do you have any guess what the next episode is called? I'm going to guess it's going to be called The Stranger, sir. <laughs> Excellent. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. This is kind of a two-parter. Excellent. Well, I think people will look forward to next week's episode, or I should say next time's episode. But yeah. Stephen, why don't you tell people how they can find you in the meantime? Uh, I think the best place people to reach me, David, is at tobolowskifiles.com. That is T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y.com. And there you could find my email. Uh, I should mention that this was a very big week historically for Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party in that iTunes has now uh, – is featuring, with a click of the button, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. You just write it in the browser there at iTunes, and you'll have the option. You could either uh, buy it or rent it for viewing. Now, I should mention that the iTunes version does not have the hour-and-a-half extras at the end of the DVD of extra stories. So if you want the movie, the extras, or to have me sign it, you should still go to stbpmovie.com. But it's there waiting for you at iTunes if you need a quick hit of the Tobolowsky stories. Yes, indeed. No more going through the extremely outdated website. You can own Stephen Tobolowsky's <laughs> birthday party right now. Talk to you, Mr. Brinkman. So, uh, yeah, go check that out at iTunes. And uh, if you'd like to find me or anything else I'm doing, you can go to slashfilm.com. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowsky Files. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Adios. If I 